So I want to begin the the weekend and this investigation that I'll weave through our time of finding contentment and particularly in the complexity that is part of our daily and even moment-to-moment experience. And I'm going to start with this um, quote from Sogol Rinpoche. Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren, barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from truth, make truth hard to live with, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this comes from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we fall into the traps. It it is so ingenious at setting for us. How do you feel when you hear this? Does it feel hard to hear and yet there's some truth in it that you can feel? I think these messages bombard us from all sides. And what we're stepping into here, what we step into our practice, if you practice each day, is the opportunity to wake up from the trance of looking in the wrong places. We think that we're going to find satisfaction And many of you are here because you already understand that you're not going to find satisfaction in all this um, mirage that is put up in front of us, that all these different things are somehow going to make us happy, give us ease, that somehow we're going to get enough or the enough things or even get ourselves to be right. I mean, the amount of money you can spend on self-improvement is just as much as you can spend on getting things. 
And that somehow if we can get all those things put together, that we'll be happy. And it's an invitation that leads us only deeper into it. That leads us only deeper into suffering. And what we're invited to in this practice is a different kind of refuge. Not the refuge, this false refuge that is offered. And you can check for yourself. I use that strong language. But check for yourself. Does it feel like a false refuge to you? I would guess it does feel like a false refuge or you wouldn't be here. There's some part in you that has recognized that the story that is being offered you is not satisfactory. That there is more potential in us. There is more opportunity for ease, more opportunity for contentment, for kindness, to fl- more opportunity for you to flourish than is being offered to you by the cultural message that you receive. And I don't, um, when I say this, I don't mean to deny in any way that there are many places that each of us find, find satisfaction. There are things that we do that are nourishing, that make us happy. And the general cultural message is one that leads us away from knowing ourselves, from finding what's possible for us to flourish. So in this retreat, in your practice, you're invited to find a different kind of refuge. Not in the distraction of buying things, not in the, um, not on the TV, not in going faster, doing more, accomplishing more, earning more money, all the, those different things. And really, that's what all spiritual traditions offer is a different place to find refuge. And it's like the open secret. It's the open hand that says there is another possibility. And each time we sit, each time we do something that aligns with ourselves, there's a... um, a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a radical, um, almost rebelliousness to that action in response to our culture. In other words, at that point, we're saying, no, that the way I'm going to do this isn't by going out and buying another thing or turning on the TV and listening to an advertisement. I think that there's something else possible. And what we're invited to, what we're turning towards, 
is what is already here. This um, tradition is based on the understanding that you are already whole, that you have goodness inherent in you, that you are a glorious, wonderful, precious expression, unique, never happened before, will never happen again. You're an expression of the divine, of the wholeness, of the one, if you want to say that. Whatever your word is, or maybe there is no word, but you are an expression and that that is already inherently good and precious. And your um, possibility, the invitation, is for you to... I can't actually talk over it. I might have to wait. It's the invitation for you to discover and to come into intimate contact with this wholeness that is already there in you. The, that there's already an intrinsic freedom that is in you, an enoughness, a peace, And in this discovery process, we are aligning with ourselves, not with the picture of ourselves. It's not like when we do this, that that idea we have of who we should be, it's, that's not what we're trying to align with. We're actually discovering and investigating who we really are. What is this person here? And this is very different than trying to create the perfect person here. We're all imperfect. It's our conditioning, the things that have happened. It's, we live in a really complex world, right? We had, we all had these very different upbringings. Perfect in the way we think of it often is like never makes mistakes, you know, gets it all right every time. I love the uh, Zen teacher who said, my life is a series of mistakes. Because we make mistakes and that's how we learn. We do it one way, we do it another way. That's how we learn. We're not supposed to have it all figured out. It's this process of turning back and looking in the mirror, looking at our own face.
Here's a little poem from uh, Dana Falds called Walk Slowly. It only takes a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still, and just like that, something in me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper, and I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget, catch myself charging forward without even knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe, and be, and walk slowly into the mystery. Walking slowly into this mystery that starts right here. Right here. And what I've been speaking, these words, these last little patch of words, what I'm pointing towards is what can be called taking refuge in the Buddha. Now, when I say take refuge in the Buddha, you might think of the Buddha who lived 2,600 years ago. True. But Buddha means awake. You can't take refuge in just that he woke up. But you can take refuge in your own potential to wake up. You can honor this possibility, this aliveness that is already here. The Kalu Rinpoche says, the only reason you don't know this, meaning that you are the Buddha, So, in a way, you are the Buddha. And he says, the only reason you don't know this is because of the entrenched view that you are not the Buddha. If we dropped the idea we were not the Buddha, not awake, we would awaken. That sounds like too simple to be true, doesn't it? Really? But if you think about it, there's a lot built into this idea that we're not awake. All the, there's an I that's, first of all, some person here that has all these identities, all these things, and the idea that we're not awake, that we're supposed to be something other than we are, and that we have all these concepts. Very, very simple, profound statement, he said. But it might be true. We get so entrenched that we believe it completely. We really believe that we're not the Buddha. What if you were? What if you are? What is your actual experience in this moment? So just check what your experience is in this moment. Is it, do you think it would be different if you were awake? If you actually know your experience? Or do you know that you're not awake, 
by what you tell yourself about your experience. When you tell yourself, oh no, this isn't the experience I would have if I was awake. That's how I know I'm not awake because I just told myself I'm not. So one of the primary ways that we... um, So there are a few primary ways I'll just mention briefly that we back away from this refuge of our potential, our awakeness. And one is the stories we tell ourselves in the present moment. Another very important one is the stories we tell ourselves about our past. Well, this happened to me, and, you know, I had a really hard childhood, and some very difficult things happened, and I'm wounded, and I'm not okay. Or, I know I've made these mistakes in the past. I know I don't get it right. I'll never get it right. I'm flawed. There's all sorts of stories that we make up about ourselves. And we solidify them and hold on to them. It takes a lot to give them up. And that's a big part of what we're doing when we practice, when we sit in meditation, is we get to recognize those stories as they come through. These ideas we have about ourselves. And in this process of recognizing them over and over again, we go, oh yeah, I see, I see you. I see that story. It's just a story in my mind. It's just a concept. The most important thing that we learn on the cushion is recognizing these stories. Recognizing the stories our mind is telling us about ourselves is what I'm talking about right now, but also the stories they tell us about the world and other people and all that. Recognize these stories. And then we can check back and go, well, what's actually true right now? What's here? I'm sitting. Other people, a little tired. Body a little uncomfortable. Kind of content. That's what's actually happening. Yours version of what's actually happening may be different, but that's an example of what's happening here. So a big part of this practice is simplifying down away from the stories and being honest and truthful about what's really, really here. What is the truth in this moment? And it's funny, we we have a lot, the same complexity that exists in the outside world that's all around us. The stories we tell ourselves are equally complex. And in fact, sometimes 
it's like, really? It's that simple? You know, it's, it can be this simple that this is what's happening? Yeah, it can be that simple. As Munindraji, a wonderful teacher of the last century, um, said, simple, but not easy. Simple, but not easy. We get very um, caught up in our stories, and we believe them on many subtle levels. We tell ourselves all sorts of different versions. Check for a moment and see, because we all have them running all the time. Just check and in this moment, just see if you can recognize one story. Maybe you'll get two or three or five very quickly. One story you tell yourself about yourself that you're telling yourself right now. You don't need to dig and go into some distant time. So there's that story. Who would you be without that story? Who would you be without that story? What happens when you drop it? Is that possible? This practice of mindfulness, which is the primary practice we engage in, is intended to help us recognize what is actually true in this moment, to help us distinguish between the truth and all the other stories. What's really here? Oh, what's really here when we tell ourselves a story? Mindfulness, if we pay attention, what's really here is that is a thought. True. That's a thought. The thought may have all sorts of causes and conditions and reasons it's there. But when you cut to the chase, the simplest truth is it's a thought. It comes, it arises, and it passes away. Now, everything I'm saying right now, you can check for yourself. As we sit and meditate, watch. Watch the stories of yourself come up and see what happens. The moment you don't pay attention to them, they go away. Where is your story then? How do we keep our stories alive? By rethinking them, right? They don't exist if we don't rethink them again and again and again. We give them a life. Kind of amazing, isn't it? We keep a lot. We keep a lot of stories going. It's not your fault that you have these stories. It's not that you're failing in some way. It's not that you've done something wrong or that, you know, the reason I'm speaking about this way is that we all do it. It's, it's what, um, you know, what we have cultivated, what has come to us through our conditions, through our, our history, 
but we can recognize it. That is the huge difference that happens from our practice. That's what separates us freedom from suffering, is recognizing what is true right now. So I, I can tell you a little thing. For a long time, I've had this story about my mom. I had this story because when I was in junior high, in high school, I was very independent. My mom didn't, and she gave me full independence. I, and that independence had some sides to it. I mean, it included that I had to buy my own clothes, and I didn't really have money, so I did it at the thrift store. It wasn't a mom who gave me a ride anywhere. I didn't have any curfews. She usually didn't know where I was. I had a lot of... I was pretty much on my own. I did have a house and shelter, and um, and, uh, for a long time, I had a story about that that my mom, um, that she kind of in her way was disinterested, kind of lost interest in me as a person. In a way, I felt abandoned. And then I did a little bit of, I would watch this story. It came up a lot and came up a lot. And then at some point, I realized... um, my mom's been um, dead for a long time, so I haven't been able in my, to ever talk to her about this. And at some point, I was able to talk to my dad, and he told me about when I was young, that my mom was just a stay-at-home mom, and she took me to the park every day. And, you know, and he sort of said, this is what it looked like. You know? And I went, huh. Interesting that that's that part of the story I didn't I didn't pay attention to. It was this later part that I and then as I started to think about it, I realized that my mother and I created that circumstance together. I was a really independent kid. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I actually didn't want her in in my business, and I was a good kid. I didn't actually need her to give me curfews and things like that. I took care of myself. And yeah, I mean, it would there was some other way it could have happened, but that I didn't actually need that story anymore. Can you feel? And without that story, there's a whole different history. That history isn't the one that I thought I had. So you can check for yourself what story or many stories you might be having. This taking refuge in the Buddha that's here. Now, it is true that in taking refuge in the Buddha, we can take refuge also in the inspiration of the Buddha who lived 2,600 years ago and was fully awake. It's very inspiring. 
But here's a poem from Mary Oliver that does speak about the last words of the Buddha, and these are as recorded the last. And it, the, the title of the poem is The Buddha's Last Instructions. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet and even green. Violet and even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. The Buddha, when he was dying, um, his one of his primary, um, his cousin and primary attendant, Ananda, asked him, well, so, you know, who's going to lead us after you die? Who's going to, you know, be the head of the ship? He said, each of you, each of you, be a light unto yourself. I tell you this because it really points to how much the Buddha really believed in each of us. Isn't that cool? He really believed in us, that we could do this, and that the resources we need are already here. There's a phrase that I like. A teacher is someone who points you back to yourself. A preacher is someone who points you to somewhere else. I certainly aim to be a teacher, not a preacher. So keep looking inside. Keep turning back. Nurture the mindfulness and attention that allows you to look back, to look inside. Very connected with this is the refuge of the Dharma. And the word Dharma means truth. That's the best translation of it. Dharma means truth. So what is the truth in this moment? What's really true? And we can investigate that moment after moment. What's true now? What's true now? What's happening now? And this practice is, I really like to think of it as a moment-to-moment commitment to preferring truth 
over everything else, over all our delusions, over our stories, over our ideas. It's preferring truth. And we don't always know what that is. That's a big part of our investigation, to try to find what is really true in this moment. Byron Katie, uh, many of you may have heard, that's like, that's the instruction she uses over and over again. Is it true? Is it really true? So she's really parsed out that heart of the Dharma, of discovering what is Dharma, what is true. And yet it can be quite simple just to be with the moment as it is, is to be with the truth. To allow each moment to unfold without um, altering it, trying to make it different, having an opinion about it. How many moments unfold where you don't have an opinion about how that moment is? That's the invitation, to just let the moment be as it is. And in this, in these words, in this commitment, I hope what you hear is that what's actually happening, whether it's pleasant and great, or whether it's difficult and challenging, what is most important is your relationship to what's happening. Are you willing to be with it as it is and recognize that it's true? So you have a, um, you have a difficult day at work. Okay, what's a difficult day? You know, For each of us, it might be different. A difficult day for me when I'm home at my office means that the computer won't do what I want, the telephone battery runs out, um, my office is too cold, you know, whatever. And I can go, hmm, this is difficult. I'm, I'm not doing what I thought I was going to do today and get this stuff done. This is difficult. I'm okay. And that's kind of the warm-up for what's really difficult, right? My body isn't doing what I want. Somebody I love is in pain. Or somebody I love is dying or has died. Those are the really challenging places of the difficult. Sitting on the cushion is the warm-up to all of them. Sitting here and it's five minutes seems like forever more for the bell. And we go, okay, so can I have a relationship to what is difficult that is non-judgmental, that has a willingness to be with what's true? What would that be like? To be with what's here with an attitude of kindness, and acceptance. Not that you can't change circumstances. People, this is a place that we can get confused. If you can change it, you can. You know? It's okay. If you can 
you know, if you're sick, it's a good idea to do everything you can to get well. Sometimes you can't, right? You just have to, that's the truth. You're sick and it's unpleasant. And how can you be okay with that? That's the truth in the moment. And actually the truth itself is a refuge. Yep, this is difficult. This is hard. Terry Tempest Williams, a friend of mine that some of you might know as an author who lives in Mo- near Moab, um, said that recently, she was talking recently, and she said that um, someone said to her, it seems like you always, um, like there's always sorrow or pain. And, uh, and she said, no. It's just that I've chosen not to turn away. So I found that very profound. It's like, no, she doesn't think there's any more sorrow or grief or pain in her life. But when it's there, she doesn't turn away. She's willing to look it in the eye and say, wow, this is painful. This is hard. And this can be true of states of mind, of physical conditions. This is the truth. This, is, this world is not a simple, straightforward, pleasant place. There's discomfort. This body. Have you ever noticed? I mean, um, just let it sit still. You'll try this for 30 minutes. And discomfort will arise. You know, it's not... It's actually not a particularly comfortable vehicle. And it's the one we got. Sometimes it's comfortable for a little while. But that'll change. So it's going to have discomfort. Have you ever noticed you can't control the people around you and get them to do what you want? That's uncomfortable. That's going to happen. Can you be with that truth? With a sense of ease? Yeah. Didn't work out the way I had planned. And if you really pay attention, how many days work out the way you have planned. I mean, I think the only way a day works out as I planned is if I don't plan it. If I have a plan, it's not going to line up. I mean, a few things might here and there. Really points to how little control we have over this whole thing that's happening. And can we be okay with that? Can we actually let it unfold and recognize the truth of that? So I'll just say the third refuge that is really helpful, and we're here together in it, which is Sangha, each other. To feel the support of each other 
in this practice, in this process of waking up, in the possibility of seeing the beauty and the preciousness in each other, we can sometimes in that see the mirror reflecting back to us of our own preciousness. And sometimes other people recognize it in us and that's how we see it in ourselves is from the mirror they hold up. This is a difficult practice. And as the saying goes, it's a, it's a singular, personal, or solo practice best done in groups. Because the group helps support us. We feel nourished, and we, or we can feel nourished. And I want to say that if you don't feel that right away, if this is new to you, that's okay. Some people find that the support of the group, they really feel it right away, and some people grow into it. I noticed for a while, my whole first um, period of practice, I was like, I was in so much discomfort and pain with the whole thing, I hardly noticed there was anybody else in the room. You know, I was just in here. The, I do remember very strongly the first moment when I really felt the support of other people. It was, I'd been on many retreats, and this was like about three-quarters of the way through a month long, and I was really uncomfortable. I was having a really hard time. I was emotionally distraught. And then I rem- remember standing at the entryway to a hall, the hall, and there were 80 or 90 people in there, and I remember just going, okay. If they can do it, I can do it too. And I really felt the support of doing it with other people. Because if those people hadn't been there, I'd have been done. I was, I was over it. But there was something about the other people that really gave me the courage. They gave me that courage in that moment to keep going. So one thing you can feel sometimes when you're sitting here is even if it's going hard for you, just you sitting here might be lending courage to the person next to you and the person behind you. And the fact that it might be hard for you even lends courage to another. And as we do this practice, as we point towards these refuges, it's not like something, um, it's all supposed to look somehow awake and true and collected. So here's a little story. So this guy walks up the mountain, you know, up the big mountain, up to the top, to where the guy in the little white, Lungi, you know, white diaper is sitting in his cave, in his hut or his cave up there, and gets to the top and he says, "Hey, Guru, I've always wondered what you guys do here on top of the mountain." And he says, "Well, at sunrise, I get up and eat a handful of parched corn and start meditation. At noon, I eat a, eat a handful of parched corn and go back to meditating." At dark, I stop and eat another handful of parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? 
hot dogs, banana splits, espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, pizza, french fries, and so on. So these minds are completely out of control. Eat your parched corn and meditate and see what happens. So I'm going to end with a little poem from Hafiz called To Build a Swing. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for God. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I will help you with my divine lyre and drum. Hafiz will sing a thousand words. You can take into your hands like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teakwood, strong silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn existence into joy. Mix them. Mix them. So we'll sit for a few minutes. I talked longer than I expected, if that happens. And then we'll end for the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.